I, I can't wait for you guys to meet Eric and Kay because right now I know it feels a little bit like they're just these virtual senior pastors that we're trying to help you believe they're really out there. They really are. We spent a week with them a couple weeks back and as, as much as they will bring to our church, they are that good of people as well. And I am so excited for you guys to get to know them and they will actually be in the building in just a couple of weeks. No more of these videos. You want to meet them, don't you? Yeah, you definitely do. Well, I'm excited to be with you. My name is Jared Kirkwood, and I want to um, spend a few minutes this morning continuing our wisdom series, because who doesn't want a little bit of wisdom, right? In life, there are really two things that seem similar, and yet they're different, knowledge and wisdom, right? Knowledge is important, because knowledge is information. It's about the things that we know. Knowledge informs decision-making, but ultimately, we've all been in an experience before where you knew the right thing to do and yet you still did the wrong thing because you lacked wisdom in that moment, right? Wisdom is the practical side of knowledge. Wisdom helps us know what to do, when to do it, how to do it, and perhaps with who. And that truly is what we're trying to talk about here in this series, that we might be people that are following after Jesus and living with wisdom in the way in which we interact with others, our neighborhood, our family, our coworkers, our other students at our school, whatever it is. Because wisdom truly is the gift that I believe God has for every single one of us. Now, Wes kicked us off a couple weeks ago and he talked about decisions. How do we seek wisdom in our decision making? Last week, Doug was here and we talked about wisdom um, in being present in our relationships. And this week, I wanna talk about the topic of words. Really, the idea that words spoken and words received have the power to shape our identity. So when we think about this idea of wisdom and words, I want us to hold on to this theme of identity throughout the morning. Now, we all would agree, we'd acknowledge that language is important, that there are very commonly held things that we all would understand that's powerful. There are some words that are significant in life. Right? For many of us, you remember your wedding day. You remember standing up in front of your friends and your family. Your partner was across from you. And the pastor asked you a question. And you responded with, I do. And you had no clue what you were saying in that moment. Right? You had no clue what that actually meant. And yet, two simple words. It's only three combined letters. And yet, it changed everything about your life. Right? There was a book written many years ago called The Five Love Languages. And the idea of the book is that there are five ways in which we all give and receive love in our relationships. And we all experience all five, but every one of us has a primary method that we prefer to receive and to give. And one of those is words of affirmation, which means that 20% of the population, their primary method of both wanting to receive and give love in their life is through the power of language, of words of affirmation. In fact, that's mine. That's my love language. That's the, the way in which my wife can express to me how much she loves me. And for hers, it's gift giving. And so I've got to figure out how to not just give her good words as gifts. I have to give her things. And it's a beautiful thing that I've had to learn, right? In scripture, we're shown that there are two words more powerful than any to invite us and to usher us into God's presence. 
Psalm 100 says that the two words are thank you. That when we say thank you, we are ushered into God's presence. Language is powerful. And so when we talk about wisdom and the words that we both give and receive, I believe that how we talk and how we interact with one another with our words is an indicator of our spiritual life. And so I want to show you a passage that comes out of Proverbs. Because as we've been talking through the wisdom series, there is no one wiser than Solomon. In fact, God came to Solomon and said, you can ask me for anything you want. And Solomon asked for wisdom, which is very wise. And probably why it made the Bible, <laughs> right? Who else did God go to? We don't really know. But Solomon got it right. And so Solomon was able to tap into this beautiful power of God that is wisdom, which has a source, and was able to then instruct and to lead in a way beyond everyone else in the world. And the book of Proverbs is a way for us to tap into some of that knowledge. Now, Proverbs can be dangerous because Proverbs can sort of feel like the fortune cookie book of the Bible, right? Like every verse, you're like, hmm. I just needed that. You crack your cookie open. Oh, what a beautiful word that is. And then below each proverb, it's like 9, 14, 27, 18. And those are your lucky numbers for the day, right? <laughs> okay, that's a danger. Because anytime we lift one passage out of a proverb, we're forgetting that every chapter is meant to be a meditation. Every chapter of Proverbs is meant for us to meditate and to consider what the whole thing means. Now, that being said, I'm about to lift one passage out of a Proverbs because I want you to go and to read the rest of these chapters. So I'm going to show you just briefly two Proverbs to get our morning started. Proverbs 12, verse 18 says this, the words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Words of the reckless pierce light swords. Um, finish this phrase for me. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but you don't even say it with enthusiasm because you know it's a lie, right? Those words will never hurt me, right? Because the truth of the matter is some of the most pain we've ever experienced in our life has come from words being used against us or spoken at us, Right? Some of the most emotionally damaging things in our life come from reckless words used on us. And if you think a little deeper, it's probably true that the most painful of those situations came from somebody very close to you. Reckless words. Doesn't have to be reckless people, but reckless words can cause some serious damage. But then contrary to that, the tongue of the wise brings healing. There's a wonderful tension in that one single passage. Reckless words can destroy, and yet wise words can bring healing. There's another passage that I want to look at. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 23 and 24 says this, winsome words pour from a heart of wisdom, adding value to all you teach. Nothing is more appealing than speaking beautiful, life-giving words, for they release sweetness to our souls and inner healing to our spirits. Think about just what that passage says. When we speak words to others, we add value to them, which is another way of showing them they're valuable. 
When we add or when we speak words of wisdom over others, we show them their value. And look at what happens. When we speak those words within us, it releases a sweetness in our souls. And it brings inner healing to our spirits. We speak the words and yet we receive a gift from God in that moment. That's what wisdom can do. Wisdom can allow us to speak in such a way that we might receive the kind of true feeling and healing and restoration that only God can bring. And so if you think about life, there are words, there are phrases, there are things that have been spoken that have shaped who you are. Some positive and some negative. Let me show you a couple positive ones first. We've kind of mentioned it already, but when somebody looks at you in the eye and says, thank you, doesn't that lift your spirit in that moment? It acknowledges something that you have done or who you've been for them in their life, and those words mean something. Or how about when you've been here on a Sunday morning or perhaps at a rooted celebration, and you've seen someone stand up and say, I believe, for the first time? Those are powerful words that have eternal implications to them. Or for some of us who maybe have not done that before, but you've sat in here and you've heard it, even hearing those words can do something to our spirit in that moment. Or for some of us, some of the most positive words that have ever been spoken in our life could be a word like remission, a word that carries so much emotional weight today, and yet a word that can positively influence our identity. Maybe for others, it's a, a loved one or a mentor in your life that looks you in the eye and says, I am so proud of you. Or for others, it's sitting in the ultrasound room and you hear, it's twins. <laughs> Which could also be a negative one, if I'm not sure, not entirely sure how that goes for you. But on the negative side, remember when you were growing up and you heard mom or dad yell from a distance, it was never to your face, it was always very far off. You heard your first middle and last name. Oh yeah, that feeling of being caught, <laughs> all the fear that comes with that. Or what about when you're in a disagreement with somebody and the other person is standing their ground and they say, but I am right. That can negatively influence us. Or how about the moment when somebody says to you, we need to talk. It's rarely followed with anything good, <laughs> right? Or perhaps the phrase, this isn't working. That could come from your mechanic and it hurts, right? <laughs> right? Or from a boss and it hurts. And if your boss is a mechanic, it really, really hurts. <laughs> When you hear that phrase, words have the power to both give and take life. And so what we need to spend a few moments on this morning is understanding what would it look like for us to speak words of wisdom over the people in our life so that we can help positively shape their identity, but also what does it look like to build up a defense so that when negative words are used against us, we don't forget who we truly are. Now, in John chapter 1, there's a beautiful poem written about how Jesus was the word of God who came down to become human and live among us. It's a beautiful picture of the incarnation where we had a God who refused to be out there and said, I will go and be with. 
Not only that, to be born in the lowest of lows to a a poverty-stricken immigrant family and to say, that's who I'm going to choose. And Jesus comes into the earth so that we might understand what wisdom with skin on looks like. So as Jesus grows up and he's about to begin his public ministry, he chooses to be baptized as a symbolic representation of who he is and the ministry that's about to happen. Really, it's the advancement of the kingdom of God, unlike anything anyone had ever seen before. So I want to show you what happens in Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven, think about that, a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. A voice from heaven did not speak words of status and title and power, but instead chose words of relationship and identity. This is my son whom I love, and I am well pleased. Words that would ring in the ears of Jesus, solidifying his understanding of his relationship with God the Father in that moment. And right after this is one of the scariest sentences in the entire Bible. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He comes to him, and look at the first thing he says. If you are the Son of God. When we read this, it's like, well, he knows he is, because three sentences earlier, This is my son, whom I loved, and with him I am well pleased, right? We see that. But we can forget what could happen in 40 days and 40 nights of isolation and starvation. Imagine the doubt and the insecurity, the confusion that would come from that length of time. So that when the enemy comes, what does he truly challenge in this moment? He goes straight at the identity of Jesus. And Jesus responds with scripture, knows the truth about who he is. So then the devil goes on. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it's written. He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. What's he going after here? He goes identity again, if you are the son of God, and then he challenges his worth. Surely if you're the son of God, you can't die now. Let's just prove it to yourself that you can't. Jump and allow God to rescue you. And Jesus knows in this moment, that temptation is not if God's capable enough to rescue him. He was truly tempting to see if Jesus understood his relationship with God and truly his identity. Are you really worth it? Throw yourself down. Jesus again responds with scripture. And then the last scene. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. 
Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. He goes after identity, his worth, and then lastly, his mission. Isn't this what you came here for? Ultimately, what the enemy was giving an opportunity to Jesus was you can have the kingdom without the cross. Why go through all the pain and all the suffering? You can have it right here and right now. And ultimately, Jesus knew that the road of suffering was the only road that he had to walk in order to accomplish what he did for you and I on the cross. But I have to believe that it was the word spoken over him by God at his baptism that allowed him to survive those 40 days and then ultimately to cement his identity and begin the ministry that he would have. But those lies can creep in and they can really cause damage. There's a pastor that says it like this. Satan does not control us with fang marks on the flesh, but lies in the heart. How are you and I really controlled? It's not by physical wounds on our flesh by the evil one. It's by those lies that have planted seeds in your heart and are wreaking havoc on your identity. That kind of pain is incomparable to anything else. In fact, I believe an attack on our identity is a spiritual attack every single time. And look at what Jesus does, right? Jesus understands that he is in a spiritual battle and he uses spiritual weapons to fight back. Every spiritual battle must be fought with spiritual weapons. He hides scripture in his heart so that at the moment of temptation, he is able to counterattack with God's truth and God's word. And perhaps for some of us, that's maybe what we need to do this week. Start to think about what's two or three passages from God's word that we could begin to arm ourselves with because that spiritual attack on your identity is coming. Why do you think we bring all those kids up front on a Sunday morning and we pray over them as parents? I've, had, I've done that with both of my kids. It's because from the, the day they stand on this stage when they're very little, I want to begin praying for the spiritual battle that will be raged against their soul. And I want to hide God's word in their hearts so they have something to fight back with when they get older. Those words that Emma spoke over us today, those are powerful truths of identity that we could hide in our hearts so that at the moment of of weakness, we have something to fight back with. Spiritual battles must be fought with spiritual weapons. You see, words and language have a powerful force in shaping our identity. And our identity ultimately informs all of our behavior, our worldview, our belief set, almost everything about us. When I was high school pastor here a couple years ago, my wife and I, um, we have two kids, um, Asher, who's now seven, and and Ellie, who's three. But when Asher was probably four or five, I was high school pastor. And we would bring him into the high school room, and I was really cool for about 20 seconds when I'd walk into a room, and all the kids were like, hey, Jared's here. They'd be all excited, and then it would quickly fade. Don't get me wrong. But as we would come in, Asher had a tendency of of tucking his face into my leg and would not want to look anyone in the eyes. And so my wife and I, well-intentioned, we would just go, "Um, this is Asher, don't worry, he's just a little bit shy, Um, he'll open up in just a second. And every time we said that, we weren't really comfortable with what we were saying because he's not shy, he's very rambunctious, very outgoing, he's a people person, he never acted like this except for this one moment every week. But over time, we just continually said that over him until one Sunday we were walking in, and as we're walking in, Asher looks up at me and he goes, hey, daddy, 
I'm just going to be shy for a couple of minutes, and then I'm going to open up, <laughs> right? And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> like, we have, we have actually shaped his identity. That might not even be true at all. But over time, we changed him, right? That was a crazy moment for my wife and I when we recognized the words that we speak over the people in our life really matter. There's a researcher that I believe has done a great service to the church. Um, her name's Brene Brown, and she's a shame researcher. What a wonderful job to research shame, right? She has some incredible books and incredible TED Talks, and she herself even acknowledges how painful it is to study shame for her career. But it is a gift to us what she has done. Now, I'm not Brene. I can't do it justice here. I think you should read some of her stuff. But simply put, she says this, shame and guilt are two different things. Shame attacks identity. Guilt attacks behavior. So she shepherds, shepherds, separates, <laughs> shamerates those two things. Now, shame ultimately forms what she calls a swampland in our souls, creates a very dark place that starts to misinterpret how things feel in our life. See, shame starts to sound like you aren't good enough. And who do you think you are? Shame is that filter that starts to make you wonder if you're smart enough, pretty enough, good enough. Do we really have what it takes? Are you powerful enough? Are you better than that person over there? It starts to creep in and wreak havoc on a lot of beliefs about yourself. Shame is the difference between failing at something and believing that you are a failure. Shame is the difference between the experience of falling out of love and being unlovable. Shame is the difference between making a mistake and being a mistake. See, shame is a powerful filter in the way in which we interpret words in our life, both received and spoken. And so she makes the correlation in her research that shame is connected to addictions, Depression, bullying, eating disorders, incarceration, and the list goes on and on and on. Simply put, shame is connected to the worst parts of our society today. Because what shame does is it negatively enforces identity. Shame makes you believe that you are nothing and will never be anything. Without wisdom we can easily get caught in believing words of shame about ourselves, and we can easily find ourselves inadvertently using words of shame on others. Wisdom is the counterbalance to the shame filter. What might it look like for us to filter out life's experiences so that we do not negatively shape our identity or those in relationship with us? So every night, my wife and I take turns putting our kids to bed. One night, I'll put my daughter. The next night, I'll put my son, and so on. And every night, the kids will ask, um, who's putting me to bed tonight? And we'll say, Daddy is. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Not Daddy, please. Oh, please, we want mommy. We want mommy, 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 mommy. And it turns into this crazy fit. My seven-year-old still throws a fit over me putting him to bed. Now, it's small, 
But seven years of every single night, not daddy, please. Seven years, I've tried some stuff. I read more books. I do all the voices, right? I do the finger puppets. I hide and scare them. Maybe that might be part of it. I do all kinds of fun things. Mom does none of it. Okay, I've got a theory. I think my kids are evil. It's the, only, it's the only explanation behind this. Now, I know it feels small, but think about this. Some of you have heard my story before. I come from a very broken cycle of parents in my life. Um, uh, three different father figures, fathers, not father figures, dad and two stepdads, both, uh, all three, walked out on my mom and I over the course of 30 years. So I have a very high sensitivity to being a bad father. Because I believe that I'm like one hour away from becoming just like them. And I have worked very hard through counseling, through prayer, through pastors here, through tears, to ensure that I have broken the cycle and that I am beginning a new legacy with my kids. And I am. And I am, and I am, and I am. Right? Until tonight... When they say, who's putting me to bed? And they hear dad, and then the crying begins. <laughs> because without wisdom, think of what that moment could do to me over time. I could start to truly believe some terrible things about myself. Think of what it could do to my relationship with my kids. Think of the bitterness and the resentment that could form there. Think of what could happen in my relationship with my wife. Right? Think about what I could truly believe about who I am as a dad. All lies. And yet without wisdom, you can see how easy it is to believe them. Wisdom is a powerful force to help us recognize God's truth in our life. And so I want to show you one last passage and help us understand how wisdom truly does teach us how to use words and also build a defense against some words against us. Here's the passage. These are Jesus' words out of Matthew chapter 12. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up with him. It's a simple concept and yet very profound if you consider it for a while that whatever goes in will eventually come out. What you fill yourself with will be the outpouring into all of your relationships, your friendships, your working, your colleagues at work, maybe it's your dorm mates. What goes in will come out. And this is a moment of spiritual inventory. What are you putting in that you want to come out? You can almost control what's going to come out of you by what you put in. If we could get into the habit of hiding God's word into our hearts, getting into God's word every single day, I promise you, because this is what God does, the scriptures that you put in every day will come out of you in that day. God will give you an opportunity. He will help you see a moment that you haven't seen before. He will give you a word for somebody else, and it will be God's truth for a person in need. Same thing with the people you spend your time with. You are becoming the average of the five people you spend the most time with. That's a scary thought for a lot of us. Who you spend time with, what goes in will come out. 
The second thought is this. Wisdom can teach us that our words have purpose. Our words have purpose. There's a passage of scripture. I'm just going to read it over you out of 1 Peter 3.15. It says this. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Always be prepared to anyone who asks to give a reason for the hope that you have. Earlier this week, there was a, a woman who came to our chapel to pray. And I sat with her just for a few moments. She was very distraught, overwhelmed with emotion. And I found out that she's a Muslim woman that has never been at a place like ours. And as I asked her through many tears, why, why did you come here? And she said this, I have heard that your God is a miracle worker, and I need a miracle. Now think about that. A woman who has never, in her wildest dreams, imagined that there might be a God out there that could do more than hers. And yet she had heard stories about Jesus and the work that he can do. And in a moment of desperation, those stories were seeds that grew roots and all of a sudden came out in a moment of need for her. And she went, I need that God. The stories that we tell plant seeds in somebody's life. The hope that we get to speak of starts to do something in someone's souls. And ultimately, you might not see it when you're telling that story, but when they need it most, the Spirit of God will bring it to their surface. That's what God does. Which, by the way, this is what I love most about Rooted. So I'm lead pastor of Rooted Network, which means I get to travel the country equipping um, other churches to use Rooted in their context. We now have hundreds of churches across the country that are going through the same program that many, many of you guys have. And we are seeing transformation take place all over the place. And what Rooted does is in 10 weeks, it allows you to connect with God, the church, and your purpose but experience transformation that can only come from Jesus and learn how to tell your story so that you are equipped and armed to reach out to every single person and say, I got to tell you my story so that when their moment of need comes, God comes to their mind because of what you have shared. And if you haven't been through Rooted at this church, I really believe you're missing the very best thing that we do. We're kicking off September 9th and 11th. We've got a table out back. You should totally sign up. And because I get to do this, like this is one of my favorite things to say, um, we've been training tons of churches out there. And on September 9th, 11th, right in those couple weeks there, there will be across the country, including our church and hundreds of others, roughly 35,000 people will start Rooted this September. Isn't that amazing? And, and, and many of you that are clapping, it's because you've been through it. And I think some of you are here, you need to try it. There is an adventure waiting for you that is so much better than the life you're currently living. The last thing is this. Wisdom can teach us that our words have the power to give or to take life. When I was 22 years old, there had been a 10-year silence in communication between me and the family of my biological dad. But I had heard that my grandmother on his side had passed away and I wanted out of respect to go and to be at her memorial. And so my wife and I went and as I showed up, a phrase was spoken over me that in the moment did not feel that painful and yet for the next probably seven or eight years of my life, it negatively formed my identity and wreaked havoc on my belief about myself. 
You see, I walked into the room, and I had recently gotten a job at this church. I had been following Jesus for a few years from now. And as I walked into the room, um, it was spoken over me that the prodigal son has returned. And I just, I didn't know how to receive it because I didn't feel like the prodigal son. <laughs> didn't get an inheritance, that's for sure. <laughs> but it was crushing. And for years, I wrestled with doubt and insecurity and confidence because was that really who people saw me as? Just a couple weeks ago, I was with Kenton and Lori and our pastors on a retreat. And on Friday, the day we were leaving, I pulled Kenton aside and I, I didn't want to miss a moment, not for him to hear, but for me to say how much he's meant to me. And I pulled him aside and I just said, Kenton, you are the spiritual father that I have needed my whole life. Somebody to help me see who God sees me as. And in mid-sentence, with tears in my eyes and snot running down my nose, Kenton stopped me and he says, Jared, I am so proud of who you've become. That phrase is life-giving. That phrase forms my identity in the way that I believe God wants to shape me. And it does not erase all of my past, but it provides a powerful counterbalance to the experiences of my life. Because I believe spiritual maturity is the ability to hold paradox in our life. Grief and pain and sorrow are not going anywhere. And yet there is hope and joy and life in the midst of it. And so for many of you, you have a word or a phrase that's been spoken over you. That if you're honest with yourself, it hurts to consider even in this moment. What's your word? Because you came to church this weekend, realizing it or not, you came to get freedom from that word. You came to be reminded of your true identity in the name of Jesus. What's your word? I want to put a list on the screen of some positive words. Some words that are God's truth in your life. Let's look at these. Loved, forgiven, accepted, adopted by God, a child of God, redeemed, chosen, healed, restored. A list of truths that come straight out of God's word about you. What word do you need to put in the counterbalance this morning? Now I'm going to ask you to do something a little bit risky for some, but important for every one of us to do. I'm going to ask you to pick a word, and I'm going to ask you to pick a neighbor. Okay, find someone next to you. So what's your name, sir? Sean. What's up, Sean? What's up? Glad you're here. Here's how this is going to work. All you're going to do, now watch carefully. Sean, you are blessed. He's alive. He's still there. I didn't die either. Was that crazy? Okay, now you're going to try this. I want you to pick a word. And then look at someone next to you, and I want you to say that over them. You are accepted. You are redeemed. You are an ambassador. Whatever it is, okay? You have five seconds to do this. On your marks, get set, go. Okay. Hey, um, just a general, uh, just a general feeling. How does that feel in the room right now? Right? What an amazing, 
first of all, my guess would be that you spoke the words that you wanted to hear the most. And even saying it, you were like, yeah, I needed that, <laughs> right? It's a big moment. But how simple is it to say three or four words over somebody, and did you catch what happened to you? And inner sweetness and healing was released within you. And you spoke life into another person. Why don't we do this more? Why don't we see God's character in another person and call it out? Why don't we say, I see God's mercy and love and justice and grace in you? We can do this with every single person in our life. We're going to spend some time singing. and The, the band's going to come up. And in this moment, I want us to bring our word of shame and our word of truth into the forefront of our minds. I would love for you to sit in a moment of paradox so that you might experience how good God can be in this moment for you. And as we sing, I believe that God will do something in your heart to show you how much bigger his truth is than the word of shame has been. So as we prepare for this, I want to pray for us just briefly. Father God, I'm so grateful that you have brought us here today. I believe that you have so much for us, far beyond anything we could hope, dream, or imagine for ourselves. But God, so many of us are debilitated and limited by the words of shame that have been spoken over us. And for even some of us, we think about the things that we have said to others and it makes us feel so small about ourselves. But God, in this moment, as we come to you, the God of the universe, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, would you overwhelm us with your goodness and your grace and your love and your mercy? Would you remind us of our true identity, even in the midst of everything we felt in our life? Father, would you ex receive this song as holy and pleasing to you as we sing? Amen. Would you stand and respond?
a beautiful picture, that there is no lie he won't tear down coming after you. Praise God. Praise God, right? Uh, uh, a couple of quick things. If you haven't signed up for Rudy yet, there's a table on the patio. I think this might be the time for you. 
For others of you, you're ready to start serving in our kids' ministry, our youth ministries. We need you. We need your voice in the next generation. And for some of you, you're here and God has done something in you, and it would be foolish to leave without receiving prayer. That we, as a church, we want to stand with you in this moment and to pray over you. There's a team that'll be right over here by these lights that would love to pray with you. And if you have needs for healing, there'll be elders available in the back. But as we prepare to go, could we place our hands in front of us and receive God's blessing? Father, would you look at your children? your sons and your daughters. Would you make your face shine upon them? Would you lift your countenance to them? And Father, would you allow them to hear the words that you spoke over Jesus in his baptism, that this is your son, these are your daughters, whom you love and are well pleased. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here. Go in God's grace.